0: So welcome once again to the Movie A Day podcast, being released through the Coffee and Heroes podcast network. Your host as always, Alan. So, it was continuing with the James Bond movies this week. I still had three more Daniel Craig movies to watch to complete the Bond Odyssey. Then after that, I thought I'd jump on to sort of a modern spy trilogy. There have been a couple more movies from that, but I just prefer the original trilogy, so focused on those for this. And then I finish off just with a random one this week, which was, it happened to be on TV at the time, and it's a little bit of a forgotten Spielberg gem. But we are going to start with James Bond and the continuing adventures of Daniel Craig in the role. So, kick back, grab a drink, coffee or beer, depends on the time of day you listen to this, and uh, and settle in. So, we're going to be kicking things off then with Quantum of Solace from 2008. Bond. If you could avoid killing every possible lead, it would be deeply appreciated. Yes ma'am, I'll try my best. I've heard that before. So, what I the first thing about Quantum of Solace is I remember not particularly enjoying it. You know, it's definitely a much better movie than I remember. You know, one of the benefits of this Bond season and watching them one after another and so forth has been the fact that I'm watching them back to back. You know, this is something that benefits Quantum of Solace immensely as it picks up pretty much seconds after Casino Royale ended. It's almost like one large movie split in two, and Quantum of Solace actually does a damn fine job of tying up loose ends from Craig's first foray into the world of 007. Clearly time and distance from Casino Royale were not Quantum of Solace's friend. You know, that that couple years break I don't think did it a lot of good when you're trying to link them together so close. What's interesting in this one as well is the fact the screenwriters were developing a new worldwide threat to Bond in the form of Quantum. Quantum. You know, for legal reasons at this point, uh, the filmmakers were not able to use Spectre. It was tied up in legal proceedings, and they weren't able to use that name in any of the modern-day bonds, although this has obviously now changed and, and will come to Spectre in, in a little bit. However, with Quantum, it was clear that this was a group of powerful individuals who had infiltrated the highest levels of their country's government and were afraid of no one. There are a couple of uh, stumbles along the way. You know, the villain of the piece does let the movie down a little bit, Gemma Atherton as, you know, Agent Fields, Strawberry Fields is just really random, just there as as eye candy and nothing else. I would also state, and and although this was actually a nice change for a Bond movie, There there wasn't really much chemistry between Daniel Craig and Olga Kurilenko as Camille, although I don't actually mind this, sometimes it's nice to flip the script a little bit, you know, Bond doesn't have to romance every single, you know, leading lady, they can be equals, and this is something that actually, I thought, improved the movie. You know, there's some great action here, some great bike scenes. I thought the opening car chase was fantastic, where he has Mr. White in the back of his car after shooting him in the leg at the end of Casino Royale. There was a lot of good stuff in this, and again, a lot better than I remember. It's also a very streamlined Bond movie, you know, simple and entertaining. It's, it's the shortest Bond movie in terms of running length overall, although I would say once again that it is a little bit of a shame about the title song. You know, it's, it's just not a duet that works for me, which is a bit of a shame after the, the brilliant You Know My Name by Chris Cornell in Casino Royale. So for Quantum of Solace, 7 out of 10. So we move on then to Skyfall 2012. You know, we've never formally been introduced. Oh, well, my name's Eve, Eve Moneypenny. Well, I look forward to our time together, Miss Moneypenny. And so we come to the most hyped Bond movie of all time. A little sample of some of the reviews I remember at the time were: "It's the most personal Bond yet. It has Sam Mendes directing. It has Roger Deakins doing the cinematography. It'll be mostly set in London. The Aston Martin DB5 is back. Adele is doing the theme song. Javier Bardem will be the best Bond villain ever." I don't think there's been a 007 movie that has generated half the publicity of Skyfall, and for me, in a way, therein lies some of its problem. There was way too much exposure, way too much given away in trailers. This really was a victim of modern movie public- publicity. You know, by the time it was released, there were no surprises. Don't get me wrong; I enjoy Skyfall to a degree. There's some absolutely great moments. You know, it does a great job of reintroducing familiar elements into the Bond canon. You know, Q branch, Money Penny, etc. But I think of it more of more as a setup movie than as a cohesive cinematic experience. When the credits roll, you can't help but feel that it's really the next movie you want to watch, not Skyfall itself. There are also elements lifted wholesale from other movies, and therefore there were no surprises plot-wise as well. You know, there's a part in the middle when the villain, played by Javier Bardem, is caught halfway through and held prisoner. I couldn't help but think that I'd seen the same thing happen with the Joker in The Dark Knight. I then guessed it was going to end in the same way, and he let himself get caught, and hey presto, I was right. I also felt that the ending of Skyfall was very underwhelming, you know, even the pre credit sequence, usually one of any Bond movie's strengths, left me feeling cold as it, it was all in the trailer. M's character was all over the place, there was no story for any of the Bond girls, I could go on. It does look absolutely stunning, I mean, the cinematography is incredible and you could pause this movie at almost any time and just take a still frame of it, but to this point it was definitely Daniel Craig's weakest movie for me and... To be honest, that might be an opinion that's not going to be popular. But for me, yeah, this was the weakest so far, and that was 5 out of 10. So we then move on from there to Spectre, which was released, believe it or not, 6 years ago, 2015. Is this really what you want? Living in the shadows, hunting, being hunted, always alone? I don't stop to think about it. So Spectre is one I hadn't watched since I saw it in the cinema upon release. I remember being very disappointed by it, and one particular plot point was just annoying to the point of disinterest. So once again, as we know, it's Daniel Craig filling out the tuxedo. But if memory serves, he admitted he would rather, quote, slit his own wrists than play the role again after this. You can feel his boredom throughout this movie as he sleepwalks through the role. The cast is admittedly strong with Christoph Waltz playing the Big Bad, Leia Seydoux playing the Love Interest, Rafe Fine stepping effortlessly into the full time Emerald, and Monica Bellucci finally getting to play a Bond girl, although it's way too brief a turn. So, in this one, all roads lead to Spectre. They had the name back, so here we are. A sinister organisation who have been playing with 007's life the whole way through the Craig era. There's also an attempt to put national security in the hands of drones and technology as opposed to on-the-ground agents. So, once again, for the fourth Bond movie running, he is disavowed slash on his own. This is really tired by this point. You know, it should be a really big deal when M pulls his passports and withdraws all the support that Her Majesty's government can provide him with. But now it just results in eye-rolling for me. It's the same thing again and again. And I also think the characterization of Bond in this is terrible. You know, how many examples of how bad Bond is portrayed here can I give? There's a part in it where he goes to see Mr. White, who is a, a throwback to the, the first two Craig movies. And he notes the cameras are there watching the house, and are, the, all these security cameras are watching certain areas. But he doesn't think to wipe the footage before he leaves. Then he's surprised when Hinks, uh, one of the henchmen of the movie, shows up at Madeline's place of work. Information Bond got from his interaction with White I mean, this is supposed to be an experienced in-the-field spy, and he doesn't do the basics. He then falls in love with Madeline pretty much right away. This is so convenient. There is zero development to lead to this. When Vesper died in Casino Royale, he declared, quote, The bitch is dead, and this is what led him to being a serial womanizer incapable of real connection. Yet here he's in love again, and ready to walk away from it all. Then we come to the thing that annoyed me more than anything. Bond and Blofeld as brothers... Why does everything have to be linked in some way? Why can there not just be good guys and bad guys? This is a joke of a direction for me and it actually spits in the face of all the previous Bond movies which have memorable Bond slash Blofeld face-offs. I had spoken before with Dan other Day about how I loathe Bond movies that rely too much on CGI. The entire opening scene, although impressive in terms of the one long shot take, it quickly descends into a CGI mess amongst a destroyed building and a helicopter fight. You can just tell that the characters aren't in any danger here at all because it's all green screened. Bring back the big stunts please. There's a car chase through a strangely empty room and also highlights what a waste Batista's henchman is. He gets this great sinister menacing intro and then he's just wasted throughout the rest of the movie and killed for comedic effect. There's an escape from Blofeld's lair in the desert that is essentially just shooting range practice for Bond. There's zero fear or tension in the scene. He may as well be playing Call of Duty. I'll leave it there, aside from one last word given to the truly atrocious Sam Smith theme song. This is pushing Madonna's effort for the worst of all time. Easily Craig's weakest Bond outing, 3 out of 10. Here's hoping that the next one coming up is a little bit better. So I'm moving away from the Bond movies and onto the Bourne movies. What is it about characters with the initials JB, James Bond, Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne? So, we're going to kick things off with The Born Identity from 2002. Who has a safety deposit box full of money and six passports and a gun? Who has a bank account number in their hip? I come in here, and the first thing I'm doing is I'm catching the sightlines. I'm looking for an exit. The first part of Jason Bourne's story. This is a trilogy for me with no weak links and I know there have been movies made since with The Bourne Legacy with Jeremy Renner and also just Jason Bourne which brought Matt Damon back to the role. But I look at this as a pretty definitive trilogy and it's one of my favourite trilogies ever made. It may even be the best although Lord of the Rings Back to the Future and Toy Story might have something to say about that. Not to mention The Dark Knight. The Bourne Identity follows Matt Damon's amnesiac spy as he desperately tries to piece his life back together after he's found unconscious in the water with two bullets in his back. The story takes him from Marseille to Zurich, finally ending up in Paris. This is a cut above your average thriller with an intelligent script and great performances. The action scenes are visceral and exciting and actually feel like there are consequences to them. There's an absolutely wonderful car chase through this movie that is just balls to the wall action for lack of a better term but also heavily infused with realism as well at the time it gave matt damon a new lease of life and actually made james bond up his game you know it was casino royale was the first movie to come after this and therefore they were leaning heavily on some of the some of the situations set up in this you know it's a great standalone movie on its own the born identity which is made even better when it's watched with the movies that follow them Unlike like any good spy movie, it also gets a good uh, theme tune with Moby's Extreme Ways, just leads itself to this perfectly. Really well cast as well, you also have a great turn here from Chris Cooper as an evil government spook trying to clean up his mess. But th- yeah, Matt Damon is just everything in this role. I think to this point he was a little bit of a a romantic comedy, serious actor so to speak, but this is him in full on action mode and it works so so well. 9 out of 10. After that, we move on to the second movie, which is The Bourne Supremacy, which is from 2004. I don't suppose it would do much good to cry for help, huh? Not much. These movies really do just get better as they go along. The first movie was directed by Doug Lyman, but it's Paul Greengrass who steps into the director's chair of this one. Known at the time for United 93. He came on board to direct this installment, and he actually set up the template from here on in. This is where it finds its groove. Born is living in India off the grid with his girlfriend Marie. He still suffers from crippling flashbacks as he's still trying to piece his life together from before he was shot. But he is doing so peacefully and staying far away from Treadstone. All this changes when Marie is shot and killed and Bourne is framed for a botched CIA operation in which agents were killed. Bourne sets out to find out what really happened and find who killed Marie. Along the way he also discovers the details of the flashbacks he's been having of his first ever operation. The action here again is fantastic, you know, the story is layered and intelligent, and the ending is strangely poetic yet perfectly fitting for a movie within this genre. It's actually surprising that it's a route that has never been taken before. 9 out of 10. This then takes us to the third movie in the trilogy, which is The Bourne Ultimatum from 2007. Why didn't you take the shot? Do you even know why you're supposed to kill me? Look at us. Look at what they make you give. Bourne still hasn't put the pieces back together in his life here. He is having more crippling flashbacks of all how all this began. A high-ranking CIA official is out to sell company secrets, holding talks with a prominent Guardian journalist. Suffice to say, deep cover teams are assigned to take him out, but Bourne would like to question him before they can, and hopefully learn the truth about himself. What's really interesting on another rewatch of these, especially watching them so close together, is the structure of these movies is really interesting. As they move forward, they actually go backwards in Bourne's story. First movie is his last assignment. The second movie is his first assignment. And the third movie is how it all began. So it's just really intelligently scripted and and just basically speaks to a long-term plan. Again, the action is superb. You know, a hand-to-hand fight scene in a really tight space is my personal highlight. But the script is just so clever and full of ideas and that elusive thing for most Hollywood scriptwriters. Logic. As I go back to it again, best movie trilogy of all time, it's certainly in with a shout. 10 out of 10. So we move on to my final movie of Movie A Day for this week, which is a, an old Spielberg movie that's a little bit of a a, for, a forgotten masterpiece, I think, which is Catch Me If You Can from 2002. Ah, just tell me how much he owes and I'll pay you back. Well, ma'am, so far it's about 1.3 million dollars. Out and out, this is Steven Spielberg's most light-hearted movie, which is a strange thing to say given that it follows one of the most notorious thieves of all time, but Spielberg shoots it like a glamorous, joyful, 60s heist movie. Catch Me If You Can follows Leonardo DiCaprio as Frank Abagnale Jr., a boy who runs away from home with not a dime in his pocket and is worth millions by the time his 21st birthday rolls around. His speciality? Forgery. He's able to make himself a pilot, a doctor, a stockbroker, and is able to forge checks so good that when he is caught, he ends up working for the FBI, helping them to spot forgeries. It's a movie where you root for the bad guy. You know, DiCaprio for me is great as always. This role could have landed him an Oscar, but then again, so could The Aviator, or The Departed, or The Wolf of Wall Street, or Inception, or Gangs of New York. DiCaprio is just one of the last great movie stars, I think, and he's one of the he, he reeks of old school Hollywood to me. And he's the kind of guy that if I see that he's in a movie, I will go see it. You know, he, he plays Abigail with enough naivety and childlike wonder that you actually wonder if he realizes the gravity of his situation at any time. Tom Hanks is the uh, agent assigned to go after him. I'm not usually a big Tom Hanks fan, controversial, I know, but he's actually very good in this as well and he chases Frank everywhere and becomes almost a father-like figure to him. Christopher Walken's another strong addition to the cast as his actual father, and there's some great small roles here for Amy Adams and Jennifer Garner. It's a movie populated with a great cast and even the smallest of roles. For me, one of Spielberg's best non-blockbusters, and it's just a great time at the movies. 8 out of 10. So that's going to do it for this week. I'm not really sure what my theme will be for next week. guess you'll just have to check back and find out. Hope you guys dug this, hope you're all staying safe out there, and until next time.